This is section 104 of Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mark Twain, A Biography, Volume 1, Part 2, 1866 to 1875. Chapter 104 Mark Twain and His Wife. Clemens and his wife traveled to Boston for one of those happy foregatherings with the Howellses, which continued at one end of the journey or another for so many years. There was a luncheon with Longfellow at Craigie House, and on the return to Hartford, Clemens reported to Howells how Mrs. Clemens had thrived on the happiness of the visit. Also he confesses his punishment for the usual crimes. I caught it for letting Mrs. Howells bother and bother about her coffee when it was a good deal better than we get at home. I caught it for interrupting Mrs. C. at the last moment and losing her the opportunity to urge you not to forget to send her that manuscript when the printers are done with it. I caught it once more for personating that drunken Colonel James. I caught it for mentioning that Mr. Longfellow's picture was slightly damaged, and when, after a lull in the storm, I confessed, shamefacedly, that I had privately suggested to you that we hadn't any frames, and that if you wouldn't mind hinting to Mr. Houghton, etc., 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 the madam was simply speechless for the space of a minute. Then she said, How could you, youth, the idea of sending Mr. Howells with his sensitive nature upon such a repulsive air oh howells won't mind it you don't know howells howells is a man who she was gone but george was the first person she stumbled on in the hall so she took it out of george i am glad of that because it saved the babies. Clemens used to admit at a later date that his education did not advance by leaps and bounds, but gradually, very gradually, and it used to give him a pathetic relief in those after years, when that sweet presence had gone out of his life, to tell the way of it, to confess over fully, perhaps, what a responsibility he had been to her. He used to tell how, for a long time, he concealed his profanity from her, how one morning, when he thought the door was shut between their bedroom and the bathroom, he was in there dressing and shaving, accompanying these, trying things with language intended only for the strictest privacy, how presently, when he discovered a button off the shirt he intended to put on, he hurled it through the window into the yard with appropriate remarks, followed it with another shirt that was in the same condition, and added certain collars and neckties and bathroom requisites, decorating the shrubbery outside where the people were going by to church. How, in this extreme moment, he heard a slight cough and turned to find that the door was open. 
There was only one door to the bathroom, and he knew he had to pass her. He felt pale and sick, and sat down for a few moments to consider. He decided to assume that she was asleep, and to walk out and through the room, head up, as if he had nothing on his conscience. He attempted it, but without success. Halfway across the room he heard a voice suddenly repeat his last terrific remark. He turned to see her sitting up in bed, regarding him with a look as withering as she could find in her gentle soul. The humor of it struck him. "'Livy,' he said, "'did it sound like that?' "'Of course it did,' she said. "'Only worse. I wanted you to hear just how it sounded.' "'Livy,' he said, "'it would pain me to think that when I swear it sounds like that. You got the words right, Livy, but you don't know the tune.' Yet he never willingly gave her pain, and he adored her and gloried in her dominion his life long. Howells speaks of his beautiful and tender loyalty to her as the most moving quality of his most faithful soul. It was a greater part of him than the love of most men for their wives, and she merited all the worship he could give her, all the devotion, all the implicit obedience by her surpassing force and beauty of character. She guarded his work sacredly, and reviewing the manuscripts which he was induced to discard, and certain edited manuscripts, one gets a partial idea of what the reading world owes to Olivia Clemens. Of the discarded manuscripts, he seems seldom to have destroyed them. There are a multitude, and among them all scarcely one that is not proof of her sanity and high regard for his literary honor. They are amusing, some of them. They are interesting, some of them. They are strong and virile, some of them. But they are unworthy, most of them, though a number remain unfinished because theme or interest failed. Mark Twain was likely to write not wisely, but too much, piling up hundreds of manuscript pages only because his brain was thronging as with a myriad of fireflies, a swarm of darting, flashing ideas demanding release. As often as not he began writing with only a nebulous idea of what he proposed to do. He would start with a few characters and situations, trusting in Providence to supply material as needed. So he was likely to run ashore any time. As for those other attempts, stories unavailable for one reason or another, he was just as apt to begin those as the better sort, for somehow he could never tell the difference. That is one of the hallmarks of genius, the thing which sharply differentiates genius from talent. Genius is likely to rate a literary disaster as its best work. Talent rarely makes that mistake. Among the abandoned literary undertakings of these early years of authorship, there is the beginning of what was doubtless intended to become a book, the second advent, a story which opens with a very doubtful miraculous conception in Arkansas, and leads only to grotesquerie and literary disorder. There is another, the autobiography of a damn fool, a burlesque on family history, hopelessly impossible. Yet he began it with vast enthusiasm, and, until he allowed her to see the manuscript, thought it especially good. 
Livy wouldn't have it, he said. So I gave it up. There is another, the mysterious chamber, strong and fine in conception, vividly and intensely interesting. The story of a young lover who is accidentally locked behind a secret door in an old castle and cannot announce himself. He wanders at last down into subterranean passages beneath the castle, and he lives in this isolation for twenty years. The question of sustenance was the weak point in the story. Clemens could invent no way of providing it, except by means of a waste or conduit from the kitchen into which scraps of meat, bread, and other items of garbage were thrown. This he thought sufficient. But Mrs. Clemens did not highly regard such a literary device. Clemens could think of no good way to improve upon it, so this effort, too, was consigned to the penal colony, a set of pigeonholes kept in his study. To Howells and others, when they came along, he would read the discarded yarns, and they were delightful enough for such a purpose, as delightful as the sketches which every artist has turned face to the wall. Captain Stormfield lay under the band for many a year, though never entirely abandoned. This manuscript was even recommended for publication by Howells, who has since admitted that it would not have done then, and indeed, in its original, primitive nakedness, it would hardly have done, even in this day of wider toleration. It should be said here that there is not the least evidence, and the manuscripts are full of evidence, that Mrs. Clemens was ever supersensitive, or narrow, or unliterary in her restraints. She became his public, as it were, and no man ever had a more open-minded, clear-headed public than that. For Mark Twain's reputation it would have been better had she exercised her editorial prerogative even more actively, if, in her love for him and her jealousy of his reputation, she had been even more severe. She did all that lay in her strength, from the beginning to the end, and if we dwell upon this phase of their life together, it is because it is so large a part of Mark Twain's literary story. On her birthday, in the year we are now closing, 1875, he wrote her a letter which conveys an acknowledgment of his debt. Livy Darling, six years have gone by since I made my first great success in life, and won you, and thirty years have passed since Providence made preparation for that happy success by sending you into the world. Every day we live together adds to the security of my confidence that we can never any more wish to be separated than we can imagine a regret that we were ever joined. You are dearer to me today, my child, than you were upon the last anniversary of this birthday. You were dearer then than you were a year before. You have grown more and more dear from the first of those anniversaries, and I do not doubt that this precious progression will continue on to the end. Let us look forward to the coming anniversaries 
with their age and their gray hairs without fear and without depression trusting and believing that the love we bear each other will be sufficient to make them blessed so with abounding affection for you and our babies i hail this day that brings you the matronly grace and dignity of three decades end of chapter one hundred and four mark twain and his wife and end of mark twain a biography by albert bigelow payne volume one read by john greenman